In this week's episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Jonathan Rennick about common headaches involved in dealing with everyone's favorite part of the internet, forms. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 54. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio podcast, episode 54, in fact. Last month was our two-year anniversary, and I sort of missed it, but that's pretty cool, so celebrating that a little bit. So today, I am here with Jonathan Renning, who you might remember from an earlier episode where we talked about uh, fixing common mistakes that people make in their JSON API design. How's it going, Jonathan? Welcome back to the show. Hey, Adam. Doing well. Good to be back. Awesome. So yesterday, actually, me and you were just kind of having a chat and we were talking about some sort of real basic stuff, but it turned into a real interesting conversation and we thought it'd be fun to kind of do an episode about it. So you had asked me, what do I normally do for fields on my models or in my database that are like optional string fields? Is it easier to just make them nullable or to allow like empty strings to like get into your database? And it was kind of an interesting conversation. So um, my opinion was that personally, I usually make those sorts of fields uh, nullable. So say you had like, um, I don't know, what would be a good example of like something that would have like an optional string? Oh, there's lots of examples. I guess it sort of depends on the app. Like um, it could be as something as simple as your email address if it's not the type of app that anybody logs into. Really that or, um, um, yeah, wow. Try to think of an example. Um, it could be maybe your application tracks the person's gender. And you can have that field and somebody can set it if they want or not if they don't want. Yeah. So you might use an enum there, but. So I guess like the common situation that happens is if you just have like a basic CRUD style edit form and there's like an input field that someone leaves blank because it's an optional field and they save that, when that comes back to your controller or whatever, that parameter is going to be an empty string. It's not going to be null because the request has no real way of knowing, like, did you want it to come back as an empty string or did you want it to be null? And it's going to come back because the form field was submitted. So if you don't do anything about it, that's going to find its way into your database. And instead of having a null value in that optional field, uh, you're going to have an empty string. And I've definitely worked on projects that have done it both ways, whether intentionally or not intentionally. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about kind of the pros and cons, I guess, of each approach. Yeah, I would say for me, like traditionally, I didn't favor nullables for those fields because it just seemed odd. Like it's mostly because I didn't want to have like, okay, so you have a new user and by default, it ends up, you know, that record ends up being created with say, you know, when it's first created, those fields aren't passed down because those fields get updated elsewhere in the app. And by default, those optional fields are say null in the database but then later on somebody goes to the page where they can actually update these fields and they hit you know submit at the bottom of the page and now suddenly you have these submitted as if they weren't filled out you have them submitted as empty strings but then you're kind of in this weird situation where you have like some of these values are null and some of them are empty strings just sort of like based on like kind of just the flow of the way the app works and that like really bugged me so for me, it's like, okay, I want to like force one or the other. So I like know what to expect when I'm working with this data in the app. So I sort of took the opposite approach that you did. And I said, well, for any string that could be blank, I would actually set a default database value of just an empty string on it. So then you would never run into that situation where you had those empty, you know, 
you know, kind of that problem. Yeah. I think I'm in the same boat in terms of like the end goal is that you don't want mixed data, like having like some of them be null and some of them be empty strings is just like really offensive. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But the reason for me that like, I guess the thing that bothered me about having them as empty strings was like, if you ever want to go back and like display that data in a template somewhere and say it's, if the field is not there, you want to not include some markup at all. But if it is there, maybe you want to wrap like, uh, you know, an optional subtitle of a post or something in like an H2 or whatever. If you have it as an empty string, now you have to either like be more careful with your checking in the template. So you have to kind of say, well, if this value is null or if it's string length is zero or if it's an empty string, you know, then don't render this h2 tag with the content in it otherwise you might end up with a situation where you now have an empty h2 tag make it into your markup which might have effects on the layout and push stuff into the wrong spot where you don't want it to be there and stuff like that so it just kind of felt gross to me um and i know one thing that you could do right is just try and depend on like falsiness so you could just say if post subtitle uh display this because an empty string is falsy and a null value is falsy. But the one case that I found where uh, that would not work the way I would expect is if you have a string that's just the number zero. Because the zero as a string is still considered falsy, even though it's a string that's with a length of greater than zero. So that's right. probably there's not a lot of cases in many apps where that's like a string that's going to show up a lot. But it just like conceptually bothers me that there's that edge case that you have to worry about. So for me, like I personally would rather make the fields nullable and try and keep everything in there as null. Uh, But that now leads on to a whole other conversation of like, what approach do you use to make sure that none of these empty strings, you know, ever make it into your database? Yeah. And that's, that's probably the reason why I didn't do it that way, because there's like this like level of um, um, work that you need to do that you maybe didn't have to do before if you're using just empty strings. So I would say before we even get into that, like I would say the one like advantage that I see immediately to say using nullables as opposed to empty strings is that that's actually more in keeping with what you do with the other database column types. Uh, For instance, if you have um, if you have an empty integer or you have an empty date, you're not going to you're not for those columns. You're not going to have well back in the day you used to have MySQL like the, the zero, date time zero, would actually zero dates. exactly oh my God. which was terrible <laughs> and that's what it did right. So that was sort of the similar thing. Uh, or you do zero for the int, which is obviously terrible because zero is a valid value, so you can't do that. So in in those situations, it's totally natural to reach for nullable. So why not reach for nullable in this situation as well? And that brings you that kind of that nice consistency. Yeah. So what I find um, I end up having to do a lot is like always have some work that happens in between uh, where I'm taking stuff out of the request. And then when I'm populating whatever I'm trying to populate with that data to save it, right? Basically checking like, okay, well, if this field came in as an empty string, I actually want to either not pass that into, you know, say the user model or whatever that I'm updating, or I want to explicitly like translate that into null. And there's a couple approaches, I guess, uh, to doing this. So I think it'd be kind of interesting to uh, talk about what some of those would be. Yeah, totally. The first one that I've seen that comes to mind is Laravel has, I mean, this is Laravel specific. I know not everyone listening to this uses uh, Laravel, but in the projects that I'm working on, I'm working with Laravel a lot. And there's this idea of form requests where you can create these classes that represent specific requests um, instead of just using, you know, the generic HTTP request object. 
And the nice thing about these objects is you can add your own methods to them and stuff. So you could override, for example, the all method that returns you all the fields from the request to actually go through each one and convert the ones that are empty strings into null or whatever before they even come out of the request so nothing else ever sees them. Have you ever done anything like that with form requests before in Laravel? Yeah, I have done that before, but I'm, I guess I'm not a big fan of that because I'm actually not a big fan of using the all uh, mm -hmm. method. Um, I feel like I like I prefer being like more explicit and actually doing the um, the calling the only method on the request object to actually just get those specific columns that are fields that I'm looking to update. So yeah. I guess that sort of hasn't worked out. That approach hasn't worked out. Although I know that there is a way. And I've seen it done where you have some sort of step within your, you know, your form request object where you do some sort of like transformation on that data and then save it right back to the request. But that even feels sort of weird to me because like you're modifying, you're modifying the request that's coming in, which just doesn't feel right either. Like the request is the request. Yeah. Um, modifying it just seems weird. I think you could still pull it off with, with only, too, because I'm totally in agreement with you. I don't use all to populate things. I mean, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, actually talked about that on a recent episode. But uh, the trick that I've done is basically defining a method in the form request that's like something like sanitize or something. And then in only and in all, if you want to use all, you can override the only method to first call parent only and get like those results. And then you can return this sanitize and pass in what came in from only. And then the sanitize method, what that would do is basically uh, see what fields are present and translate any of them. And then you could do the exact same thing with all. So you can say like data equals parent all return this sanitize data. And then it would sanitize uh, that stuff for you. So that is like one approach that I've taken that uh, has worked pretty well in the past. But it's not like something that's really cemented into like a concrete uh, you know, convention in the apps I've worked on or even in the framework itself or anything. Yeah. And does that then like, just like apply like a standard sanitization to all the fields that came in with that request? Or when you do that, do you have like the ability to like set certain sanitization rules on specific fields? I guess you could do whatever you wanted. Yeah, exactly. It's just kind of like free for all. So I'll yeah. often have just situations where I'll basically be going through and a whole mess of conditionals or uh, some sort of like mapping transformation thing where it's like, well, you know, if the first name field is an empty string, then change the first name field to be null or or whatever, right? So it's it all ends up being pretty ugly no matter what you do, in my experience. <laughs> what I like about that, though, is that, that that would give you the flexibility to sort of switch it up where you could kind of modify those those fields after this, you know, after the, you know, kind of at that point, um, but they, they can be modified in a bunch of different ways. It doesn't just have to be as something as simple as say a trim. For example, maybe you have a, a date and a time that's ultimately going to get merged together and saved into the database as a single uh, timestamp, mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily, you know, want to have that as a, obviously want to give the user the ability to have those two separate controls within the actual form. So at what point do you actually merge those two things together? And that seems like it would be a nice place to do that. Yeah, the other approach that I've used that is very similar 
but I find it to be a little bit cleaner is rather than using like a form request object, which, you know, is a request that extends the base request and adds a bunch of stuff to it. And you would have to override a bunch of methods is creating a, a form object, which is just a plain PHP class that accepts the request and its constructor. And then it has a bunch of methods on it to expose the actual fields that the app cares about from the form, and it does the work to, to translate them. So my form object might have a first name method on it that returns null if the first name in the request is an empty string, otherwise it returns the first name. Or it might have a, a date time field on it that returns the date and the time fields from the request combined into a, a single carbon instance or whatever. And I find that to be a little cleaner than doing the form request approach because it kind of keeps things separated and you don't have like this inherited class from the framework where you're worrying about overriding things. You just have this kind of real simple, clean slate, sort of plain PHP class to do that stuff in. So that's an approach that I've actually been using on like the latest thing that I've been working on, which uh, me and you were looking at last night and that has worked out okay. But to be honest, for a big form with like 12 fields or whatever, it still feels like a, a real kind of monster of a class even though it's not doing anything complicated it's just you know you need to translate 12 different fields so yeah it can be a little bit a uh, little bit gross looking i don't know forms man i feel like forms are really the the, <laughs> the main cause of all uh bad code in any project that i've ever worked on yeah and that's basically what our entire apps are made of you know our, our apps are made of of all sorts of different forms you know to to do all sorts of different things. So this is like literally something that we work with every day. And yet there's like <laughs> these painful points. And then there's like these, you know, these patterns that I feel like that have not been like totally flushed out or there's like lots of different ways to do them. And I just haven't really landed on one that I really love. Totally. I find your form, your form object approach pretty interesting. Actually, I've never really used it myself. I've stuck more with the um, form request objects and then just kind of passing off to the controller to do whatever the next action is. But just so like, I'm clear, your form objects will actually do whatever the action is that you're intending to do, right? Like it, you don't like pull back data from that form object and give it back to the controller, correct? I've done it both ways. It really depends on what's happening. If it's just something simple where all it needs to do is like create a model. So a perfect example, which is the one we were looking at last night is we're looking at the Ticket Beast app, which is the app that I'm working on for the testing course that I'm working on. And there's an add concert form for a promoter can add a new concert. And it has to do a bunch of the same sort of work that we're talking about. And all it really needs to do at the end of the day is take those fields and create a concert eloquent model and save it. It just needs to make sure that all the data that makes it in there you know, is good data by the time it gets there. So what my controller ends up looking like is basically, essentially it's something like form equals new add concert form, then pass in the request, which is the only dependency of the form. And then I basically call form save. And that internally does the creation of the concert and saves that uh, to the database and stuff like that. Uh, the other thing that's neat about it is you can stick all your validation stuff in these form objects too. Um, so I end up with just like an array of validation rules at the top and it ends up being kind of nice because, uh, I find what can happen otherwise is you'll have like a controller where maybe, uh, it has three different actions on it that all have their own slightly different validation rules or whatever. So you end up just wanting to put all the validation rules directly in that controller method, which normally I like have no problem with, honestly, um, especially for small forms. But once you get into forms that have like nine plus fields or whatever, it starts to make those controller actions look kind of messy and you feel kind of bad about like pulling them up into like protected properties or whatever. Cause like, 
you end up giving them stupid names like protect private update validation rules private store validation rules private whatever um so if you can put all these things in like their own objects that like represent the form that's coming in it kind of is a natural place to sort of attract a lot of this behavior out of the controller uh, which has no real benefit other than just like making things feel a little bit kind of tidier and more uh, contained but i definitely like it yeah that's interesting you say that because that's that's actually kind of been my issue with some of their form request objects so like quite often i'll have the form request object which has like the string uh, sorry, the array of validation rules in it, which is nice because Laravel, that's a framework I work with as well. It automatically runs those validation rules and returns the errors properly back to the user and doesn't hit the controller method if the validation fails. I really like that part of it. But what I don't like about it is that I really now don't see everything kind of in the same context. Like I'm looking at the controller method and I can't like looking at the controller method know right offhand, like what are the values that are coming through that, you know, that the validation is looking at and expecting or maybe you can even see them because you're say, you're doing something with those values, but you don't necessarily know how the validation is working. So then you end up jumping into that other class to look at that. And I think what's nice about these form objects, if you went that approach, is that, and this is sort of like been something I've always like been leery to do. So this is why this is interesting for me, is I'm always nervous to give any sort of like class in my project an instance of the request. Like I sort of have like, like ingrained in my head, like that request object, it's available in the controller and that's it. Yeah. But I think if you free yourself of that, you, you can potentially, you know, do more interesting things and yeah. Yeah, I agree. And uh, the way that I kind of justify it is, and not even justify it, but I think like actually opened my mind to like some interesting possibilities is you sort of think about like your HTTP layer where like your request comes in as like the request is kind of like the last standing thing at that layer. And then that gets passed into your controller. And now you're in like your domain code or whatever, right? Where you don't want to be like HTTP aware. But what I think of these form objects as being, as being like other objects that I'm like putting in the HTTP layer. You know what I mean? I don't think of them necessarily as being so much in my app layer. I think of it as like a decorator, like around the request that comes in to have like one more layer to like help get the data into the right format before it really hits the app code. And I think that's actually an interesting place to put a bunch of code and to write new classes and to write new stuff because people are kind of like afraid to write code that's like outside of that domain boundary i guess or whatever because it feels like you're writing stuff that's not portable or yeah or whatever yeah but at the same time that like this work needs to happen somewhere right totally. like it, it where are you doing it mm-hmm. like i always like I, you hear oh you know our controller methods only have two to three lines of code it's like okay well where's your where's your authorization stuff going where's your validation where's your sanitization <laughs> where's your passing stuff into you know where are you passing those um yeah. fields into something that's going to do something like where's all that happening and it's like we can get like really creative at like kind of pulling all those pieces and putting them in different places to make ourselves feel better about having these short controllers which don't get me wrong that is good but maybe you end up with like all these pieces in just different places in it in some ways becomes more confusing. I don't know. Yeah. I think like in short, that is a a cool idea is to play with creating stuff that kind of sits outside of your, your app kind of layer. And I mean, another example would just be stuff that you put in the view, like any helpers and stuff that you write for the view. If you ever use like any sort of form building library or anything, that's kind of like the same thing in terms of it's code that exists, but it has nothing to do with your app. It's just like some more stuff kind of in that more presentation or HTTP kind of boundary layer to kind of make it easier, 
you know, to interact with the stuff on the inside. So, yeah, I think it's kind of cool. It's 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 funny, like a lot of the complex code that you write, maybe not even complex, but a lot of the kind of workhorse code that you end up needing to write, in my experience, sits out in that kind of zone. Like there ends yeah. up being a lot of work that you got to do out there. Um, and then the actual application stuff, you know, is usually the easy part because um, you're I not know exactly what you the mean. inside world, you know? Yep. I think when I first saw your, your form objects, one thing that came to my mind is like these people who have these controllers and they're single endpoint controllers, basically. And it almost feels like you could, like, I know that that's like not like what most people are doing nowadays. You have a traditional, you know, con- traditional controller, like REST controller has like create, post and delete and update and all these different standard REST uh, methods on them. But when I think of like the form object, I almost look at it like it could be like a single controller intended for a single endpoint because that's really kind of what you're doing. And I guess you could do that. It's more just the design preference at that point. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is is really uh it's not just a great feature but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer so the fact that we're able to click on this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important if we get an email from a customer and the customer says you know your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to rollbar and to say okay you know this individual customer this is how they're experiencing the site because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't we'd be dealing with it so i've been using rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app nitpick ci and loving it uh, if you want to check it out you can head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days so check that out and uh, thanks again to rollbar for sponsoring full stack radio so uh the next thing that i think we have here is stuff to do with basically deciding when a form should be like a full form submission or when you should jump to like making an Ajax form and kind of the, the trade-offs involved in, uh, in each approach. So I guess uh, I'd be curious what is kind of like your default mode of action these days when you're creating um, a form. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because like years and years ago when Ajax first came out, I was super into it. I'm like, this is the best thing ever. I don't want to do like standard form submissions ever again. So I used them for years. Um, and and that was sort of like my default go-to, which was obviously a terrible idea because not everyone has JavaScript. And you know I didn't think a lot about fallbacks and different things like that. Uh, I would say in the last number of years, I'm definitely more inclined to go with a traditional form submission, a, a traditional non-Ajax sort of approach unless there is a good reason to add some JavaScript stuff on top of it, which interestingly enough is sort of like becoming more and more common. It's like standard HTML forms so often let you down. So often you want to do something more with them, just some sort of extra little thing that just isn't possible kind of using the the old school approach. 
So I say like my rule is basically stick with the old way unless I have to introduce some JavaScript to do something better. Yeah. I think like the one thing that pushes me to use uh, an Ajax request for forms a lot of the time is when the form is in any way complex, only because if you submit something with Ajax, you can submit the data as JSON, which is like a nice way to structure data. And you can have like things kind of nested and organized or whatever, which you can't do with, you can do some stuff with like a standard form, but it gets really messy when you have like maybe a dynamic number of fields or something. And you start having to do that thing where you name an input with like an empty pair of square brackets at the end. And once you have like maybe multiple layers of those, then things start to get like really tricky. And I find like I always would end up in this situation where I'd have to structure my data kind of like in the opposite way that I actually wanted to. Like if I had like um, a list of, say I had a form that was trying to add multiple contacts at the same time or something. And I was putting like their name, their email and their phone number. Uh, And then there was a button to like add another block where I could put in another name, email, phone number until eventually I had all the ones I wanted and then I would save it. The way that it always ends up working out is that it ends up being way easier to submit it where all the first names are in one way or sorry, all the names are in an array and then all the emails are in an array and then all the phone numbers are in an array. And then you're always like matching up the indexes on each one to like extract It's the worst. Compare that to a JSON object though, where it's just an array of objects that have each have that key value pair in them and it's a lot more easy to structure that on the client side because you have full flexibility in javascript versus just whatever naming structures that your inputs in html will support and then it's super easy to parse on the server side too because you don't have to try and pair things up properly it's already structured in the right format so i definitely find that's a case where i end up reaching for that it feels like i have to reach for ajax requests like earlier than i wish i had to a lot of the time You know what I mean? Like, it seems like, oh, this is going to make things a lot easier, even though there's like barely any good explanation for why I should need an Ajax request here. For sure. So tell me about how you're passing that Ajax data down or how you're passing that JSON down through your Ajax request and then how you're actually parsing that on the client or on the server side. Like, what does that look like? Because quite often for me, like when I'm using like standard, even when I'm using Ajax, I'm still passing down like traditional post variables or whatever got it yeah so i'm usually as soon as i'm gonna jump to ajax i'm pretty much gonna jump to some sort of like um form binding framework or library like these days i'm using Vue.js a lot and Vue is actually wonderful in this regard because unlike basically any other javascript framework i've ever played with it doesn't feel like overkill like it feels like if I'm using jQuery, I could use Vue instead, and it doesn't feel like I'm bringing in anything heavier. It actually feels lighter in a lot of ways. Like totally. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like I'm bringing in full-on Angular or like some real heavy thing just to do some tiny form on one page. It's nice because you can just pull it in from a CDN for a static HTML project and just put the inline JavaScript right there at the bottom, and, and it just feels like it feels light, which is nice. Um, so what I end up doing is I pull in a, a framework like that, and... Uh, then I'll bind up whatever the inputs and stuff are to my kind of JavaScript object that's living in, you know, JavaScript in the JavaScript environment, which is kind of like the main kind of philosophical difference, I guess, between using like a data binding library or trying to work with jQuery 
when you're doing stuff like the jQuery way, usually your source of truth is the DOM, right? Where you're totally. storing all the stuff in the DOM and you're counting fields in the DOM and duplicating things in the DOM. And working with all kinds of hidden fields to save data yeah. just because you yeah. want to totally. save some extra data. Totally. So when you're working with like any of these other libraries and the stuff is living in the JavaScript environment, I can just keep it in like the JSON structure that I want there. And then the view, like the, fo- the form, the visual you know view layer that we're looking at is just the html representation of that data and then i'll just make like a post request with a json body back to the the server using that data versus just trying to do the standard post request or anything now there are cases where unfortunately you are forced back into that world which we can talk about too uh but yeah and then on the server side um as long as the server notices that you know the content type is json or whatever then uh, the, the tools that I work with are usually smart enough to to parse that out for you and give you access to that data just as if it was any other sort of associative array structure or anything. So ends up working out to be pretty simple in that regard. That's awesome. So in Laravel, for example, the standard form or the standard request library has support for that built right in then. Yeah, you don't even have to think about it. You can just do like, uh, there's a million ways to access parameters on requests in Laravel specifically, but I just use like the global request helper function where you just pass in like a field name as a string and it'll just extract it for you. As long as it sees that the content type came in as JSON, then it'll be smart enough to to look that in that portion of the request. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tricky when you're dealing with errors, though. That's the thing that gets tricky in that regard. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because that's sort of where I always get hung up. It's it, you have you have say a normal standard form submission uh, or a form that submits kind of like the old school way, and then you introduce this JavaScript layer, and then you start doing submitting down a JSON you know request, and that's all awesome. But then it's like okay. Now my server-side endpoint, I've got to do something different. I have to change because the way I'm sending it down is different. And I always like run into this like weird situation. It's like, well, what am I doing? What kind of like, is my server-side controller method, like, does it have to know? It obviously does have to, it, it needs to know what sort of request it is. It knows that this is going to be coming from Ajax as opposed to a standard form submission. So then you have like this awkward thing like, okay, well, I have some endpoints in my app that like respond to Ajax and some that respond to like standard requests, you know, classic requests. And then you have situations where you want them to actually do both, which I find is like, so so that already bugs me just having like different endpoints, like responding to different types of requests and then, and obviously responding to those differently. So for like a more traditional response, you're going to do a redirect. That's almost always what you do, or you, yeah. you redirect back with errors. Or if it's a, if it's an Ajax request, then you're responding with some most, most likely some JSON data that's being spit back. Right. Yep. So, um, how do you handle those situations? Do you do like some conditional logic within your methods or do you just never do that? Or do you create like an API sort of uh, controller, you know, for stuff that's being hit from Ajax or I'm curious kind of how you solve that. Yeah. There's a couple of different things there. Like the, the one that you mentioned that I still don't have a good solution for is like when you have some endpoints that are designed to take an Ajax request and others that are not, uh, just because in some cases it was more convenient to do it one way, in some cases it was more convenient to do it the other way. And trying to decide like... Or even for the purpose of fallbacks, right? It could even just be that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I 
I end up in situations where I'm trying to decide like, okay, do I want to separate all the controllers that accept JSON from the controllers that are just my regular HTTP or sorry, HTML style controllers. And I've done it both ways, but I still don't have a good answer for the way that I really have found that I like, like what I, I like keeping them separate because it's kind of clearer. I just don't know what to call it most of the time because what I've, what I've done in the past. So one approach that I've taken is I'll have like a prefix, a route prefix for like API and I'll call it API, even though really it's just for JSON style requests and responses from inside the app. Like while you're on pages related to the app, it's not like a publicly consumable API or anything. And as long as the project is never going to have a publicly consumable API, then it always feels fine. But when you're on a project where you have HTML requests and responses and internal Ajax JSON style requests, responses, and a third party API, then figuring out how to organize that stuff always feels kind of hairy. So I still haven't landed on, on a great approach. What I think I really want is I want to find like some word for, um, uses a different prefix you know what i mean it's almost like i want to have like a json prefix and then like just stick that in another folder which could be one way to go something else i experimented with a couple times that was kind of neat actually was i got I kind of borrowed this from rails so in I rails was wondering, yeah if you just stick dot json on the end of any url it'll come back as json for the most part as long as, long as you didn't go out of your way to disable it so i've done some stuff with laravel before where i've like had uh or matched on .json at the end of like my route names and put those to like different controllers. And that's kind of worked out okay in some cases too. Um, the other approach that like you've talked about is if the logic in both controllers, like just say you have, if you want to support both, I mean, what Laravel does in its kind of like internal controllers that do that sort of thing is there's a method on the request called wants JSON, I think, that just tells you if, if the accepts header or whatever is set to to prefer text slash JSON or whatever. And uh, yeah, they just use like a conditional check to return a JSON response if they see that. So that's one way you can do it. Rails has like a more cool sort of pattern matching style approach where you can have like, you define like basically a list of formats and what the response should be for those formats. So you can have just like a key value sort of structure where it's like, oh, if they're requesting JSON, return this. If they want HTML, return this. If they want XML, return this. You know, stuff like that, which uh, is kind of a cool idea too. But I don't find myself in many situations very often where I have the exact same controller action that needs to support a bunch of different response types. I don't even think it would be like a bunch. I think it's like moving forward. I think it's going to become really common where you want to do the old way and kind of do the new Ajax JavaScript sort of way. So it's really like, for me, it's those two. But is that for for what reason? Like to support people who don't have JavaScript enabled? I guess. I guess that's part of it. Or just because in some situations it makes sense to use some ajax JavaScript control and maybe in other situations it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess probably those two. It doesn't happen that often, but I do think it happens frequently enough that it's sort of like this yeah. thing that you got to deal with. I really like kind of what you're descri- describing, kind of like what what they do in Rails, where you you know you can have a single request that can respond to different data types, and I don't know that seems like that seems to make like the most sense to me. But yeah, I don't think yeah, I think so too. I think the only issue there is like you're really depending on 
all the rest of the work being identical and it's just the response format that's changing. So you're expecting that the request comes in formatted exactly the same way. So that means like a traditional form or a post request and a JSON request are both going to come in structured the exact same way. Um, you know, and all the work that you're going to do is identical. And then you're just going to return a different response based on what they're asking for. And, you know, maybe that's actually more common than my instinct makes it seem like it would be. But it's one of those things where like, I feel like I would, I would want to be able to have the flexibility to kind of handle those things differently instead of having to like, try and handle both cases at the same time. I feel like that could lead to some complexity if you're not careful. Yep. I can get behind that. That makes sense. It's just uh, whatever that makes me feel a little better about not worrying about that because I sort of feel like, well, I have these two endpoints that are doing the same thing almost, but it just happens to be different because of the way I'm working with those endpoints. So yeah, yeah, that's cool. Cool. Just wanted to take a minute to thank Hired for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. So searching for a new job can feel stressful, scary, time consuming. You know, you got pushy recruiters trying to sell you on roles that you don't want or job boards that make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go through the whole interview process only to find out at the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. So Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. The goal of Hired is to make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. So instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. So you just fill out one simple application and then top employers apply to hire you. So over a four-week time frame, you'll receive personalized interview requests with upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about which opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big companies like Facebook, as well as smaller emerging startups. And the size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. So right now, Hired can help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. And they keep all your information totally private, so there's no way that your current employer or past employer can see that you're looking for a new job. The best part about Hired is that it's completely free to you as the person who's looking to get hired. In fact, Hired will actually pay you a $1,000 hiring bonus if you take a job that was offered to you through Hired. And for Full Stack Radio listeners, they're actually doubling that offer to $2,000. So if you're a Full Stack Radio listener who's looking for a new opportunity, you can use Hired to look for a new job. And if you take one through Hired, you'll get $2,000. So if you're interested in more details about that, you can head over to www.hired.com slash fullstackradio to find out more. Thanks to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Back to the show. Well, we did start talking about errors. We didn't really get into it. One thing that I would say is like with the Ajax form stuff, what I try and find myself doing is like, so if you're just doing a regular form submission, that's going to send back JSON to the server and that server is going to send you back errors for that request. My experience is that trying to map those errors back onto the UI all on the client side is difficult a lot of the time especially when there's dynamic number of fields and stuff like that it gets like real hairy so my experience has been that it's been easier since you're already in javascript land and you're expecting everything to be javascript do client-side validation for as much as humanly possible and then just don't send the request until it's validated now that doesn't 
mean you can't that you can not do the server side validation of course because you still need to do that for data integrity purposes but it does mean that like you don't have to try and map that response back onto the ui when it comes back instead you can just treat that as kind of like someone went into curl and tried to mess with your stuff so it doesn't really matter if what they get back is super friendly or whatever um but yeah trying to do the client side error handling i find has made it a, a little bit easier in those cases yep yeah i uh, i i totally agree with that approach and a lot of times if you're switching to use a java switching to use a javascript component anyway then that just sort of like feels like a natural thing to do um oh, here's a question do you frequently add say javascript validation on a more traditional uh uh form request or do you generally just let that go through the typical yeah i won't add javascript just to do client-side validation i'll just let it go all the way through and then come back with errors yeah because it's almost like i would have preferred to do it that way anyways and the only reason i added the client-side validation was because i had already committed to doing everything on the client side and like now it's easier to do the errors there versus on the server but yeah Yeah. i mean it's it's kind of nice and to do that if you're trying to build something where like having a real slick user experience is really important in terms of giving people good feedback right away. Like, you know, when you focus off of a field, being able to say like, oh, there's an error there or whatever. But yeah, it's definitely a pain. It's funny. It's funny though, that that exact example is like, I like that idea too, but like more often than not, that kind of stuff actually ends up creating like more issues and more frustrations for me in the UI itself. Especially it's like, okay, if you have one field that you, I don't know, it's like, if I'm filling out a form, I don't even necessarily like in feedback that something's invalid in, if there's a submit button. Like, tell me when I press a submit button. Otherwise, like, have you ever had it that you're on an app where you, like, you happen to just focus in on, say, an email field, but you're like, oh, I'm not ready to fill that. I'm going to go back to my name. And suddenly it pops up with an error. Yeah. It's like, it's just like, you're giving me, I'm getting the, that feedback way too quickly here. Mm-hmm. And then it gets, like, extra tricky when you have, like, certain fields that, like, depend on other fields. So maybe like a date and time field and somehow the validation between those two works together um, yeah. where it needs to. Yeah, it's definitely simpler to just have like one kind of event that triggers like check if the form is in a valid state sort of thing. Exactly. And kind of related to that, like it's it's something I've tried to do before because I always love like the apps, not necessarily like a, a form that you fill out to say purchase something or something that's like, okay, I'm going to fill out this form and then submit it and then I'm done. Um, something more like an app where like I'm managing some data or, um, it's something I'm in like a lot. I love it when I can go to like a field, make a change and then like it saves right away and there's like no submit buttons at all. Have you ever worked with an app like this? Like everything auto saves. Um, I always like really like the feel of those. There's always something like kind of like scary about them too, because it's like the second you make a change just say, you don't know, like, did it actually save or this is it? Have you done much? Have you done much stuff with that? I don't, I can't think of a case where like I actually have programmed a UI like that where it auto updates. I know there's like a lot of considerations to make there in terms of like handling like debouncing and stuff like that to make sure that you don't send like a request for every character that the user types until like yeah. it seems like they're done and, and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah, there's lots of different things when you start introducing like when you start doing a JavaScript front end to a form, there's like the possibilities are endless, but there's like lots of lots of gotchas that you gotta deal with that you don't necessarily know until you <laughs> kind of get into the meat and potatoes of it. Totally. Yeah. I think um the one thing that I ran into for the first time last year, which I had never even done until then, was I wanted to submit a file upload 
using like an Ajax request. And I wanted the rest of the Ajax request to be JSON because that's how I want things to be structured if I'm going to send them with Ajax because it's nicer. And I found out that that's not even possible. Like you just straight up can't do that. I mean, maybe someone listening to this knows an answer to that. But as far as I've been able to tell, if you're sending like that multi-part request or whatever, uh, you can only send like traditional form data with it. You can't send like an unstructured raw uh, request body. So there's no way to stick JSON in there. So yeah, I don't know. That was an well, interesting it, thing to run yeah. into. Yeah, and you can only use like post. You can't use patch or anything like that. Um, not that you'd need to use anything other than post and patch, I guess. Um, but, so then you have that whole issue where you have to submit it as a post, but it might be like an update form. Like maybe you're updating the user profile and you you want to do sorry, not you want to do put or patch. Well, you can't do that because you're uploading an image or whatever for a profile picture or whatever. Well, yeah. you have to use put. So then you're like. Like a lot yeah. of frameworks come with kind of like little workarounds for this. It's like, well, I'm going to submit it as a post, but I'm going to pass through this like little hidden value that like in Laravel, for example, it's like underscore method. And then you pass through the actual method that you want the framework to treat that as. Yep. And, and that's like, that's a great solution to like that problem, but it's still like super annoying that you, it feels sometimes like when you're working with file uploads, like you're stepping back 10 years in like webland. Yeah, like it's really, rough. why is this? Yeah. Why is it so difficult? Right. I was going to say the one approach that I've seen to trying to deal with the file upload stuff that I thought was kind of neat is basically to upload the file as soon as the user like selects it and treat that as like its own thing. So once you choose the file, uploads it to the server and comes back with like, you know, some sort of identifier for it. And then you can stick that in like a hidden field or something. And then when you submit the rest of the form, you're just sending, well, here's the identifier for the image that you already have on the server now, which is one way to do it. But man, does it feel like a lot of like comp, complexity and a lot of work just for you know something that almost every app it feels like needs to do uh, you know just like a basic form that has a file attached to it and if you want to do it in a way that feels like a slick kind of modern client-side experience all of a sudden you've you've committed to doing a lot of work to make that work properly absolutely and in that example that you just mentioned it's like well what happens then when when the user leaves that form and doesn't actually ever submit it. It's like, well, that temporary file that you just sitting there, it's sitting somewhere. So you need to have like some sort of cleanup script in place to take care of that later on, which is the worst. Yeah. But I agree with that. I generally like my, my recommendation around how to like when working with file uploads would be to say, try to avoid as much as possible doing any sort of like passing down any other data. Like, Deal with the file upload as its own thing. Uh-huh. Have its own endpoint for that thing. Deal with it on its own. I think you'll have less pain than when trying to submit that with you know some other values. Because really, like doing more of a traditional page submission is the worst with a with a with a file upload. Because if it's a big file, so again, going back to like that updating the user profile example, it's like, okay, well, you're gonna submit it. And if you're using like classic server-side validation, it's like, okay, well, you just uploaded that two meg file and well, oh, it turns out your email address was formatted wrong. Um, <laughs> but now, now that file upload is gone. Like there's no way to like, unless you save it, you know, server-side somehow, which again, you could do the other way and it's just annoying. So like the page reloads, but like you can repopulate those previous values but now there's there's no easy way to pre-populate that file. I don't think there's I don't think there's any way to pre-populate a file input, is there? No, you don't no, there have isn't. access to the user's file system. No, nope. because you're no, sandboxed, you exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I mean, that's just one real strong argument for just wanting to do it as AJAX, just so that if 
if there is an error, at least you already have the page still there and you didn't lose like all that state that was put together. Yeah. Oh man. Have you ever had to deal with uh, large file uploads? Have you ever had to, like, I have. It's hard. So I was going to actually ask you um, before we jump into that, do you have like any common libraries that you work with for dealing with file uploads? Like some JavaScript libraries that make it easier to help with things like showing previews and thumbnails no. and file sizes and upload progresses and all that sort of stuff. So the last time I did it, I actually pulled up the code in advance here to look at it. I did it by hand and it wasn't too complicated. Uh, there's a lot of bad info out there about like doing image previews. That's kind of outdated because it is like pretty well yeah. supported. It seems like now. But uh, yeah, you have to do like some stuff like, let's see what I had to do here. Basically, any time that someone selected a new file, I'd have to go to like that element and like extract the files that are associated with it. And then you have to do this thing where you create like a file reader object and you have yeah. to do like reader.read as data URL to like get like the base 64 like version of the file. So you can set that as like the image source on like your preview or whatever. And then... uh and then when you go to upload it, you have to like manually create like this new form data object and then like attach all of your other fields to it and then attach the file to it and then post that. And like we're saying, it can't go as JSON. It has to go as like a regular yeah. sort of post request. But yeah, I haven't uh, I haven't worked with any like libraries for doing that. Do you have anything that you work with regularly that simplifies that stuff? I kind of. You're crazy for handwriting that stuff because that's not easy. Um, I've used uh, a library called Fine Uploader in the past. It seems like it's always a frustrating experience. Kind of like the I don't love the API of the library. Uh, I'm always trying to figure out like, okay, how on earth do I change the endpoint that I want to actually submit this to, or, or how do I change the name of the, the file that I'm uploading? But besides that, like it's a pretty, it's an older library that's been pretty well battle tested. It was actually for years, it was a paid product, but just, I think last year they, they open sourced it and they've still like the main, they main like the actual development on it continues all the time. So that's one to check out. Cool. You know what work? I think we just started using one called drop zone. Uh, JS uh, might be another one look worth looking at. Yeah, does that handle the upload stuff for you, or is it just like a drag and drop integration? Um, I'm pretty sure it handles the upload stuff as well because we basically use it as an alternative to Fine Uploader for our particular use case. Cool. So that might be another one worth checking out. The nice thing about Fine Uploader, kind of getting back to like the large file size stuff, is that 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 library has like a lot of support for like resuming and like chunking and different things like that that you need to do in order to get like if you're starting to work with like anything that's like more than like 10 megs or whatever where it's going to take a yeah. significant amount of time to upload it is like the absolute worst as a user where you sit there and you wait for even for like five minutes and then it like pauses or stops and you can't resume it and the thing does nothing to continue like it's like it's a tricky thing to get right and um and there's there's things that you can do. Obviously, sites like Vimeo and and YouTube have gotten really good at this stuff. So I found using Fine Uploader for large files has helped. But honestly, generally, I try to like totally just avoid having to do large file uploads in whatever yeah. way possible. So like one situation in an app that I was working on where there was large files was I had um, videos that they wanted to upload. And it just worked a lot better in this for this particular app where users could just upload videos straight to Vimeo themselves and then you know stick in the code into this particular application. Now that 
that may or may not work depending on your particular situation. But that's how I sort of got around that particular uh, problem. We had a project at Titan, uh, one of the first projects I worked on there, where we had to do file uploads from an iPhone app to an API. And uh, we were handling all the file uploads manually and storing them in our own storage because of the, just the way that the project needed to be done. And uh, I was really surprised at like how many challenges there were and how many things we had to kind of write by hand. Um, like like you were saying, like stuff to do with basically chunked file uploads and keeping track of like, well, what what is the first byte that you're sending and how many bytes are you sending and basically saving all these chunks of the files separately on the server, kind of making it resumable so that if, especially with the iPhone, because if someone loses network connectivity or something and that chunk exactly. fails, then the iPhone app needed to be able to upload the that chunk again. And it had to be able to do that by basically querying the server to kind of find out like, what do you have so far? You know what I mean? So there was endpoints for that sort of thing. And every kind of like upload kind of job had its own like identifier and there'd be multiple chunks associated with that. And then when it was done, the iPhone would like send like some request. I think it was like a delete request actually to like an endpoint that basically said, hey, you can delete this job now because like basically saying like it's complete and now you can process the file. And then we'd have to stitch together all those chunks uh, into a separate file and then stream those up to Rackspace, I think we were using. And it was just like crazy how much we had to do ourselves in terms of like, uh, all this direct header manipulation on our requests and stuff to, you know, send back and forth these chunk things because there wasn't a lot of st standard stuff that I could find. I think what we ended up doing was looking at how the Vimeo chunk uploading API worked and kind of trying to mimic like the way they were doing things there. But that was, that was a pretty interesting uh, learning experience for sure. Yeah, I uh, I think that's why a lot of people end up just going with like the direct to Amazon S3 uploads because they handle a lot of that. Mm -hmm. So you do the upload there, you get you know your response back, and then you just deal with it from there. But they kind of handle all that tough stuff, and that's where again where Fine Uploader works well because it has like direct Amazon S3 like like it's built like right in, or it's like you can optionally add it to that library, and then you don't have to think about a yeah. lot of that stuff. Is there anything? How do you prevent people from like abusing that like? Cause you don't have any control over like having a secret key or anything. Cause everything has to be like right on the client. So couldn't someone just technically upload whatever the hell they wanted to like your S3 that's, bucket? That's sort of what I've always wondered as well. <laughs> exactly. I think so. You have to do that and you basically have to keep an eye on it and you don't, you don't make yeah, your whole so just, S3 bucket open. It's just a trade off like anything else, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And you just hope that people don't like fill up your S3 server with God knows what. That's right. And I guess if you're if you're actually dealing within uh, your own app where you know the user, like that helps. And it depends how like it depends on your app as well. Like how much do you trust that user? Do you trust that like um, are you do you have contact information where you can call them and ask them why they're abusing it if they are, or is it something more like, you know, where you have like millions of users and you don't really know anybody and every single user could potentially be a malicious user, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly trade off, I guess. I think vile uploads are like you could have like multiple episodes just on file uploads <laughs> and like all the pain around them yeah it's, it's an interesting but sometimes frustrating uh area of the web to work on yeah they're definitely one of the trickier things i mean forms in general a lot of pain so yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i mean maybe that's a good place to uh to start wrapping things up anyways um let's think are there any kind of key takeaways that we want to share or anything related to some of the stuff things that people can uh can think about and try to uh, make their form experiences a little bit more positive. 
Uh, I think like the one thing that was interesting was that, you know, the idea of introducing like the sanitization layer, either through something like form requests, if you're using Laravel or just like more basic form objects, which really can just work in any environment, kind of portable anywhere. And just using that to be able to like convert empty strings to null or to be able to combine two fields that should be represented as one data type, you know, stuff like that. I think given the, uh, I think given the, uh, form objects to try that you mentioned is a good idea. I think there's something to that for sure. Yeah. And even be able, being able to like stick your validation stuff in there, which can, can clean stuff up a little bit. Yep. In terms of other stuff, I would say if you're dealing with, uh, forms where you have to do like dynamically generating fields and, uh, stuff like that. And if you're currently living in like jQuery land where you're trying to find, some div and copy it and append it to the end and you know dealing with all your brackets and your field names and stuff like that and trying to parse out on the server if you're finding that to be painful then something you could try is trying to move that to be more javascript heavy and trying to use like a, a form binding library like Vue.js or you know react will do it or even more old school stuff like knockout where your data model lives in the javascript instead of in the dom and you can just have your DOM be the representation of the data and then send that data back to the server in a more structured format instead of having to kind of do all this crazy stuff to transform the data that comes back and get things to kind of fit in the right shape. The other thing uh, maybe would be if you are trying to deal with like the errors and stuff like that and you're doing like a client side form, uh, consider just trying to do like your error validation on the client side and not worry too much about trying to interpret the response that comes back from the server if validation fails. Uh, my experience has been that it's easier to deal with that stuff on the client side. Yep, especially if your application is not set up to handle that as a non-AJAX request anyway. And then file upload stuff. Um, just, you know, a little bit of info. If you've ever wanted to do file uploads with JSON, as far as I can tell, it's impossible. If you ever wanted to do image previews, look for uh, more modern bits of info out there that'll explain how to do it with like the read as data URL, base 64 stuff. Cause the alternative to that is uploading the file and then getting a link back and then previewing it from your own server, which is what used to be recommended, but you don't have to do that anymore, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I was going to say, also try to avoid um, uploading your files while also trying to submit other field data. I think trying to just do that on its own is, is can save a lot of pain. Yeah, totally. Cool. Well, I think that's uh, probably all we got for uh, for tips. We've been going for a little while here. So, yeah, man. Um, anything else that you wanted to uh, close out with? No, I think that's good for today. I appreciate you having me back on. It's always fun chatting, Adam. Yeah, thanks for coming back on, man. It was good. If anyone wants to check out uh, show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 54. Thanks to Hired and Rollbar for sponsoring the podcast, as always. And if you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's really helpful to get us in front of more people. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.